0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. I'm super lucky to be joined this week by Zach Sims, who's the co-founder and CEO of Code Academy. Zach, thanks thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me, Carl. Excited to be here. All right. First things first, I'm a little bit of a naming geek, and I love your name in many respects, but let me first spell what I think is the correct name. Make sure our listeners get to your website. It's Code Academy, spelled C-O-D-E-C-A-D-E-M-Y, Code Academy, codeacademy.com. But I inadvertently spelled it wrong, Code Academy, and got there anyway. And that I love. When you're gonna pick something that's a little bit non-standard, I love that it still gets you there. Tell us a little bit, tell, just while we're on that subject, did you always
1: own both names? Ah, uh, So it's a very long story behind that one. Uh, so the company technically is called Code Academy uh, and when we when we launched the business uh, we thought it was catchy uh, you know Code Academy I think has has a ring to it um, but uh, we learned quickly that there were plenty of folks that were interpreting it as Code Academy uh, and so we bought the domain codeacademy.com um but the company's official name is Code Academy just we own codeacademy.com in case it is confused as Yeah well
0: on. Well, I always tell my students if you're going to pick something that's a little cute, a little bit non-standard, make sure you own the obvious spelling variants. And you did that, so it's, it's all good. Actually, I love I love the name. All right, we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: Give us the elevator pitch. Tell us what Code Academy does. Yeah. So uh, Code Academy connects millions of people around the world to economic opportunity by teaching them 21st century skills. Uh, and so you know, if you, if you join Code Academy, you can. Uh, get a great education in programming, mobile development, web development, data science, in a way that is interactive, flexible, and accessible.
0: All right. Well, I I, I know a little bit about it because actually at this very desk where I'm sitting. Uh, my, my son used to live with me in this apartment, and he went through one of your programs at this very desk. So I followed it a, a, a little bit, but but take us another, drill us an, uh, another level down. Tell us who your typical profile is, typical user, and maybe a typical program they might complete.
1: Yeah, so we have, uh, you know, generally we, we focus on two types of learners. Uh, one is what we would call a career switcher. And so the career switcher is someone who is looking to change careers as the name would suggest, uh, generally to become a full-time technical professional. Uh, And so that means joining the ranks of software engineers, data scientists, uh, and writing code full-time. So that's kind of one category. And the second is the career upgrader, which is generally the person who is looking to uh, learn a new skill to improve in their existing careers. So these folks you might think of as the marketer who's learning HTML and CSS to write their marketing emails, or the financial analyst who's learning Python to analyze their company's data. Um, so I think those two groups are really the bulk of our learners. Um, we do that said, you know, especially recently, see uh, attraction amongst K12 and college students, uh, oftentimes who are learning to program either in the classroom or using Codecademy to kind of pick up a new hobby and skill.
0: But the real yeah. focus
1: is those career-oriented learners.
0: So, so that the upgraders and the, the K12, I can imagine they can consume the curriculum in, in small bites. but uh, tell us for if you're a career switcher, what, what, what what's a realistic expectation for about how many courses, how long uh, to, to really build the skills you might need to, to get a real tech job?
1: A while uh, is the answer. I think you know yeah. nine to 12 months uh, mm-hmm. we see oftentimes that you know if you're learning part-time uh, we see that you know learners uh, they tend to spend five to ten hours a week on the product. Um, if they're learning uh, with a goal like that in mind. And, and that is kind of a nine to 12 month journey to get a new career in that sense. There are, of course, people that spend, you know, 20, 30 hours a week on the product as well um, that are, you know, kind of more regularly and more frequently uh, learning faster. Uh, but yeah. in general, that's the time span if you're switching careers.
0: Yeah, and, and what's the, I, I suspect this is a very fraught statistic and when you will qualify, but, but h- how do you think about success rate? And, and placement for that first segment?
1: Yeah, so um, the short answer is we don't. Uh, I think the, the product, I think it would be similar to asking like a textbook manufacturer how they think about place for, uh, placement rates. I think we are, uh, unlike a bootcamp for instance, that might be uh, you know, $10,000, $20,000 or an income share agreement, um, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, we are $40 a month maximum uh, and $240 a year. Uh, and so as a result, you know, our promise to learners is basically we'll provide you terrific career relevant, interactive, engaging curriculum. Uh, but, you know, the results are up to you because it's really a self-directed learning product. Yeah. Uh, and so as a result, we don't make career guarantees. We don't connect our learners to um, to new careers. And I think that's a different category of product. Yeah, but that's
0: kind it. of like saying, Hey, you didn't pay much for it. So don't, don't complain if it's a crappy product. Uh, you must have some sense of, I mean, I agree, the value proposition is amazing, but, but do you, you must have some success stories or some sense of how those people fare? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so, so we have plenty of success stories. Um, I think, you know, we tend to see um, lots of folks, like you mentioned, kind of anecdotally uh, graduate from the program, find jobs, um, you know, whether they're working in established companies like at Google or kind of getting jobs at, at companies like Target, um, you know, I think these technical jobs are everywhere uh again i think the the difference is just that we're not saying i think the way that yeah. all the boot camps are you know spend twenty thousand dollars nine months with us we guarantee you'll find a new job or your money back um for us it's different and again i, I would draw the parallel i think we're significantly better than a textbook but like it, you don't ask textbook manufacturers kind of what percentage of people that finish reading the textbook end up graduating and, and we are a resource in that sense where the learner kind of takes the resource makes what he can out of it and then yeah. A job.
0: yeah All right, well, tell tell us a little bit more about the experience. You make an analogy to a textbook, but presumably it's not a textbook. So coding is is very much a hands-on kind of thing. So how does it work, and how do you deliver the service?
1: Yeah, so the the real focus for us is on an engaging user experience. I think, you know, when I first started the company, one of the things that was just massively frustrating to me was the way most people taught. Uh, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, sitting in an introductory computer science class I think you kind of sit there and you watch a lecture uh, and then you go home and it's theoretical and then you go home and you work on your homework and it takes you know, hours and hours and hours and you're stumped and confused. Uh, and it feels very theoretical for the most part uh, and, and very focused on like lean back learning. Uh, whereas I think one of the things that we really wanted to focus on was learning by doing and what we would call kind of lean forward learning. Uh, and so that means we've taken a programming development environment and we've put it in the browser uh, and you learn interactively by doing. So, you know, we'll tell you what a string is, uh, and then you'll be responsible for writing a string, uh, mm-hmm. running it in your development environment, and seeing the result. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it starts simple like that, but builds up through. You know, if you're working on a project, um, you know, you won't just read about it. You'll be building it yourself. And as you're building it, the development environment will kind of tell you the things you're getting correct, the things you're getting incorrect. We'll give you points and badges for doing things. Uh, correctly so that the experience is much more kind of take feedback loops. Um, you're being told, you know, when you're learning correctly, you can make mistakes and learn by making mistakes um, and, and much less kind of monolithic, like I think you would find learning in the classroom can be, mm-hmm. uh, and not at all video-based. Whereas, yeah. you know, most learning yeah. I find is video-based. We're purely interactive.
0: Purely interactive. So there's no, there's no uh, human or humanoid persona there. It's strictly you're interacting with a program. Uh, a, a pathway uh, through an interactive learning experience got it uh, got it interesting well um you alluded to this obliquely, but um you're uh you're in in a long line of of successful entrepreneurs who are college dropouts uh, is that tell us the origin story so so you dropped out of college was that you hated it so much you just had to go fix it is that the origin story? take us back to the beginning yeah,
1: yeah so i um... You know, I I was an undergrad at Columbia, uh, studying political science, and I'm still a big believer in the liberal arts education, maybe not the cost structure, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, And so I was was studying political science. I worked for a couple of startups in New York, uh, a company called Dropio that got sold to Facebook, and a company called GroupMe that got sold to Skype. Um, And what I kept seeing was just, you know, the people that it was incredibly challenging to hire were software developers, designers, product managers, these people that had programming skills. So I went back to campus and I tried to learn those skills myself. I took an introductory computer science class uh, and I just found that it was one of those classic leader courses you know, you're being told on day one, you're going to spend your whole life doing this and it's going to be so difficult. Um, and, you know, I stuck it out, but I found myself wondering, like, why this is supposed to be the most important skill of the 21st century, but we're making it unapproachable. Uh, and as a consequence, nobody's entering the field. Uh, and as a consequence, I think GDP is constrained because we're not able to be as innovative as we could as a, as a country. Uh, and so I think for me, that was a, a real wake-up call um, from a macro perspective. And from a micro perspective, you know, I looked around and I saw uh, all of my friends in college that were, you know, many of them were first in their families to go to college. Uh, and if they were lucky, they would graduate and work in a field like finance or consulting that was like completely unrelated to the field uh, that they studied in, in their undergraduate program. Um, And that felt bad, uh, and and I think that's if they were lucky, right? And and for the vast majority of students at the time, um, it was 50% of U.S. college students were unemployed or underemployed a year after graduating from college. And I remember reading that statistic and just being like, this is crazy. College is, you know, is really challenged. So my co-founder and I uh, took that idea of, you know, how can we really solve this gap between education and employment? Um, And we focused on kind of different manifestations of trying to solve it. I think that the biggest focus for us, obviously, was on the most important skill, which is programming, uh, under the logic that every job in the 21st century would at least depend on knowing uh, what programming was and and bits and pieces of it. Um, So we kind of messed around in our dorm room uh, for three or four months. We applied to a program in California called Y Combinator, uh, which is an early stage accelerator, got into the program, uh, and then launched the product about three months later after kind of three months of furious you know, product development, talking to potential customers, you know, kind of building uh, and, and launched. And fortunately, we're met with a pretty positive reception.
0: Yeah. So that's a story. Now, it might be a revisionist history, but it, it sounds like that vision, as you told it, is pretty close to what actually happened. To what extent did what you set out to do really deviate from what you ended up doing?
1: I think, you know, uh, when we started the business, the, the focus was definitely on connecting education to employment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were twists and turns on that journey. Um, you know, we, we looked at different manifestations of that. So an early idea we started pursuing was, you know, can we assess people that are learning, uh, you know, that are learning programming, give them a kind of challenges and assessments, and then match them up with jobs based on their performance on those challenges and assessments. And that was kind of one of the one of the early ideas that we'd had. You know, we ran that through a couple of early tests. We decided that maybe wasn't the right thing for us. Uh, and so went back to the drawing board, but all under this kind of broader mission of, you know, how do you connect education to employment? So we looked at a couple different manifestations, to your point. Um, and it definitely was not like Codecademy is the first thing, and it just works right out of the gate. Um, there, was, there was definitely trial and error in there as well. Yeah.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Zach Sims, who's the co-founder and CEO of Code Academy. Um, Zach, well, uh, tell us a little bit about, okay, so you were founded in in 2011. It's 2020. It's nine years. Do you think about that nine-year period in epics where there's certain sort of key phases, and maybe you could walk us through,
1: fast forward, tell us a little
0: bit about that that arc, that nine-year arc.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I think the, um, probably the first year, six months to a year uh, of the company, you know, were when it's really uh, in its early founding. And, and so I think that was, you know, an idea in the dorm room, um, you know, applying to Y Combinator, getting in and kind of really my co-founder and I, uh, and taking an idea and making it manifest itself and launching it. Um, and I think you know the pre-launch phase is, is um, fond memories. I think you never ship things as quickly as you do as yeah. when it's people. Um, and and I think we were lucky with that early launch. Um, you know that things went particularly well. Uh, I think you know that the next segment of time probably comes. You know when we started hiring people and really growing the business, um, which is kind of probably early two thousand twelve. The first person we hire after we raised our Series A, um, and, and we spent. Uh, through kind of the end of 2015, uh, so 2012 to 2015 and early 2016, you know, really focused on uh, growing the business uh, for free. And so the, the thesis was, you know, the, the, the business has a three-part vision. The first is to connect consumers with the skills they need to upgrade their careers. Second was to help companies learn the skills they need to stay relevant. And the third was to eventually connect consumers and companies to help people find jobs. Uh, And so, you know, those first four years or so were really focused on uh, on the free side of the product. We were just trying to grow uh, at all costs. We were lucky to find a bunch of supportive investors uh, who kind of supported this notion of let's get distribution for this product uh, and we'll monetize it later. And I think, you know, that that was definitively uh, one era of the business is when, you know, those North Star metrics were signups and active users and people using the product. and then I would say kind of the, the final epoch and the one that we're in now, um, you know, is the one where we became a business. Uh, and that, you know, I think started mid-2016. Uh, we launched our, our paid product, Code Academy Pro. Uh, that product is a subscription product that's, you know, $40 a month or $240 a year, uh, focuses on giving our learners access to thousands of hours of curriculum, paths, so they know what to learn uh, in a community. And, and we've spent kind of the past four years, turning that into a business. Uh, and, you know, now it, it's a business that, you know, doubled from 2008 to 2019, doubled, you know, will double again from 2019 to 2020, um, you know, in, in the tens of millions of dollars in revenue at this point with more than 100,000 paying subscribers for that product. Uh, and so, you know, I think now the North Star metrics are different. Uh, the North Star metrics are, you know, sales and revenue uh, and our conversion rate and our retention. Uh, and so I think, you know, if I had to break it down, it would be kind of the, the pre uh, pre-launch era you know the era when we were completely and totally free uh, and then turning a, a free product with big distribution into a big business yeah it makes total
0: sense and if we look at that that well that arc by the way is a classic silicon valley story you're not a silicon valley company but you did do the yc thing so you, you made your yeah. you made your pilgrimage drank exactly. the collade and yeah and adopted that model and and particularly that 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 2012 to 2015 period I, I was in Silicon Valley during that period. It was a very heady time in which valuations were rising. It was this was the the basic story of how you build a, a company. Um, but it, it actually does seem to work out pretty well. But if if just as a little education for our listeners, if, if we were to look at your model today at your pricing page, you have a free a free model a pro model and an enterprise or at least a hook into an enterprise product. And that's a pretty standard way of thinking about products like yours. What, what advice would you give people who are, is that freemium model, a good one to pursue? Is it one you would recommend others pursue, or maybe under what conditions does it make sense?
1: Yeah. So, um, so many caveats to this answer, uh, your mileage may vary. Um, I think for us being a freemium business has been truly terrific. Um, I think with the caveat again of you should always understand um, kind of when you will launch a premium tier. I think we were freemium, um, you know, all along we knew we wanted to be freemium, but we were completely and totally free for a very extended period of time, uh, you know, for the first four years of the business and, and without a clear definition of when we would start generating revenue. And I think it was the kind of thing where, you know, oh, we have 5 million registered users, 10 million registered users, 20 million registered users. Uh, there was never a goalpost where we said, you know, we will have achieved critical mass at this point, And that is when we should start monetizing. Mm-hmm. And I think in retrospect, that was a big mistake. And we wasted it, you know, some time um, because of that over optimizing on the free side of the funnel. Um, since then, I, I can say that, that we've benefited from all that time that we spent on that side um, because the, the business great unit economics and, you know, sign up hundreds of thousands of free learners on a monthly basis. Uh, we convert a percentage of them to paying subscribers uh, and our marketing costs are de minimis. And so yeah. you know, we have a business that is really driven by organic growth um, today, which I think is, you know, for many consumer businesses that are, you know, bidding against each other on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram uh, for new customers, it's very rare to have a business that, you know, just sends new users reliably on a monthly basis. I think we are lucky to be able to do that because the free version of the product.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. As an entrepreneur myself, I can say when you, when you get to the point where you have enough flow through your funnel that you can start to estimate parameters and say, okay, this thing works or, or it will soon work. And now we can work on actually optimizing conversion and, and the flows. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Until you have that, it's very hard to run any reasonable experiments or to make any realistic forecasts about how your business uh, will work. But but until you started monetizing, it really was just an act of faith because you had no paying customers, literally none. Is that that's right. right. Yeah, you're yeah. paying
1: customers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, that's that's pretty interesting. Okay. Well, um, I suppose we're in the middle of a fourth epoch, uh, which was dealt to us by you know a bat in Wuhan, uh, and I yeah. and I wonder, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about maybe what you were thinking going into 2020, end of the year, making your plans, and then what you did in the middle of March, and then how that's turned out for you guys. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think we, as I mentioned, kind of we're looking at doubling the business year over year. I think, you know, plenty of strategies to do that, Continuing to invest in marketing, launching new curriculum verticals for us. So increasing the amount of mobile development content that we have, for instance, launching more deeply in data science uh, and looking further afield in other verticals. Uh, as well, in addition to a bunch of great new features that we've added to Pro over the course of the past six months and, and will continue to add. Um, but I think obviously all of that was relatively upended in March. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we first, from a team perspective, you know, made the switch to work from home, as obviously everyone now has. Um, and we've been relatively lucky that that's been um, a pretty good transition. Uh, I think from a business perspective, you know, the, the first question we find ourselves asking ourselves uh, as a um, you know, business that attempts to do well by doing good is kind of, how can we help? Uh, and so we saw two opportunities for that. The first was, um, you know, students all around the world being out of a job uh, or, you know, sorry, out, out of school, uh, we thought we could offer them the opportunity to start learning on Academy for free. And so we gave uh, more than 100,000 scholarships to students all around the world uh, whose, interu- whose schooling was interrupted, uh, whether they were in K-12 or college. And, and you know, the demand for these scholarships was insane. I mean, I think it was students everywhere from, you know, Turkey to Brazil to the U.S. to Australia to Iraq, uh, you know, kind of really go all over the, the world. Um, and these stories are, are really heart-wrenching, you know, from students that, uh, you know, are passionate about education and can't go to school anymore, uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, we were able to help uh, 100,000 students that way. And then I think that the second opportunity we saw was helping people that have been furloughed or laid off. Uh, and so we also offered 100,000 scholarships to uh, folks that could prove economic hardship that way. So those that had been let go from their jobs or put on a temporary furlough. Uh, and, and some of those stories are similarly touching. I think, you know, for, for us, it, it was not only the uh, potential career aspiration for these people, but also seemingly something to keep them going during hard times. Um, we had one learner, Alan, who worked at a, um, an auto parts factory in, uh, in Mississippi, um, you know, who had his wife worked in a restaurant had also been furloughed, uh, who said that basically getting on Logging On to Code Academy in the morning was a thing keeping him going, you know, keeping wow. him from thinking about, uh, you know, being unemployed, how to make ends meet in two or three months, uh, and, and kind of helping him see a better future. And, and so I think those were the, the most immediate things that we did. Um, and other than that, I think we saw, you know, tremendous uptick as with many online learning companies people stuck at home trying to learn new skills um and and that you know was interesting and, and large in magnitude as well so on on balance it, just just
0: in terms of the, the basic business this has been a positive for you
1: you know it feels very weird to say that i know i i, I it's just what it is you know i yeah yeah i, I think you know number one in, in the immediate manifestation of the numbers uh yes i think like you know there there is this event that occurred in march and the numbers you know started getting uh definitely better in march so yes um but i think to me the more interesting long-term question is you know does this accelerate a five-year trend or a 10-year trend that is now compressed into five weeks or ten weeks right and and i believe the answer to that is yes i think you know two uh, two or three-fold the first uh, is is for consumers, so I think consumers can't physically go to schools right now, mm-hmm. uh, and so they're looking at online learning much more seriously and realistically yeah. than they did before. The yeah. second, I think, is in uh, academic institutions, which you know maybe before said oh, online learning is not really for us. We don't need to figure out how to deliver our education online. I think are learning very quickly that like teaching over Zoom is very frustrating, and so schools need to adopt technology solutions before the next school year. And yeah. finally, I think. Companies that uh, you know rely on instructor-led training uh, in person are struggling because they can't deliver that instructor-led training, and now they need programs online as well. So I think there's yeah. this massive kind of secular and systemic shift that's occurring right now as well uh, that is pretty underestimated in the education
0: world. Yeah. Well, I'll take any silver lining we can get here. You know, I mean, it, yeah. So it, it, we look for little little elements of, of positivity here. Uh, well, we we just have a few minutes left, but but maybe I, I'm in the in the higher education business, and I'm one of those arrogant, I'm in one of those arrogant elite institutions that has been protected by brand for se- literally centuries. What what would you, uh, what do you, what do you forecast for for higher education? What do you think is going to happen here?
1: Yeah, I think this is not a particularly unique, uh, you know, forecaster position. Maybe it would have been five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm very curious to hear your take on it too, um, but I think you know, we had a shaky system before this, Um, you know, we had, to your point, you know, Penn, Wharton, et cetera, the the Ivy League, insulated the brand matters. Top 50 schools, top 25 schools, the brand matters. You can get away with anything effectively, and you can monetize that brand. I think you've seen Mm -hmm. that with companies like Trilogy or schools of continuing education um, that help monetize that brand. You know, other than that, you have a lot of schools where they're effectively not worth the price of admission. If they're a private for-profit you know or even nonprofit universities uh that struggle uh and and i think what we will see here is a lot of students deprived of the opportunity to go on campus uh will start to ask themselves like why am i paying sixty seventy thousand dollars a year for this education the degree is not worth the paper it's printed on i don't get to take advantage of you know the academics sorry of the uh, athletics i don't get to take advantage of the campus life and so i think people are finally going to start asking themselves the question what is the purpose of an education uh and whereas in the past you know everything became bundled in a college education right you have the actual education the academics research institution athletics you know a place to grow generally if you're between 18 and 24 even though many college students aren't um and now i think those things are being you know splintered apart and i think of us as an example of like great if you want an education and you know that's high roi spend 240 dollars in a year of code academy Learn, you know, for three months full time. Get a new job, uh, and it's the best money you've ever spent. We don't have a sports team, you know. We don't have, uh, <laughs> you know, events that you can hang out at, uh, you know, where you'll meet your best friends. But we do offer a really phenomenal education, and yeah. so I think we'll start to see like those universities that don't provide outstanding service in any of those categories will start to fracture, uh, and hopefully that will mean a trend towards you know higher ROI education opportunities.
0: Yeah, it's all good. I'm actually really excited. Uh, to watch it. And you've said it actually in a very, I think, in a very wise wise way. Uh, Zach, we're out of time, but uh, thanks so much for joining us. Super interesting story. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.